This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Tuesday, January 31st, and those five officers aren't the only ones being taken off the street. We start here. Memphis authorities suspend more members of the police squad that arrested Tyree Nichols and fire the medics who were supposed to care for him. They went to the scene and they failed to conduct an adequate patient assessment. We'll take you to Tennessee for the latest. The pandemic continues, but the Biden White House says the national emergency will soon be over. It is hard to declare an emergency over. I think COVID will probably have the last word there. How this will affect you inside and outside the doctor's office. And they had 10 million dollars to spend, they decided to put it towards reparations. They had to label the program race neutral. Why a revolutionary approach in Rhode Island is stirring up controversy. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. There were many disturbing parts of the video of Tyree Nichols' death at the hands of police. But one of the more confusing things to watch this, as someone who read the headlines about five police officers charged with murder, was how many people were in these videos. Like, there's a lot more than five people on scene. I'm just trying to go home. Man, if you don't lay down. I am on the ground. In the first set of images released from that fateful night, you see the hand of one of the cops responding, and that hand belongs to what appears to be a white man. Well, there weren't any white cops charged here. Then there are all the people who aren't in frame for much of this altercation, namely medical workers. With Tyree Nichols beaten and bloodied, leaning against a car, no medics attended to him. For a total of 24 agonizing minutes, he sat there alone until the EMTs finally arrived. Well, yesterday, there were new consequences for some of these figures that a lot of people weren't talking about until these videos had been released. Let's go to ABC Stephanie Ramos, who's been in Memphis ever since these videos went public. Stephanie, let's start with the news of another officer has been suspended from the force pending an investigation. What did he do and why didn't we hear about this until now? So this officer that we are now learning about is Preston Hemphill. So he was actually the third officer to the initial stop. So from his own body camera, we see him get out of his car. And at first, he's aiming his gun at Tyree Nichols. And then at some point, he switches to his taser and he tries to tase Tyree Nichols as he's running away. He fails at that. But... What we actually heard from Nichols's family a few days ago is that you see his hands. He is a white officer, and we hadn't heard about him at any point in the last few weeks. I think that all of them should pay, uh, along with the white officer that was tasing my son. How come he hasn't been charged with anything? Now he has been relieved of duty, and there were a lot of questions. Well, why now? Why weeks later? And the only reason why we know his name is because you can hear his name in the body camera video. So he has not been charged. And I spoke with the police department, with the public information officer at the Memphis Police Department, and they told me that the reason why 
information on Preston Hemphill and the other officer that was relieved of duty around the same time that the other five officers who are charged were relieved. The reason why they didn't immediately release that information is because they were not fired. And typically the department does not release that information Mm. of an officer if they've been relieved of duty until the investigation ends. Clearly this is an ongoing investigation. It is nowhere near being over. So they were withholding that information. We're just looking at everybody, you know, even people that were uh, filing reports afterwards. We're making sure that we have done a comprehensive investigation. The police department felt obligated, I guess, to say, well, hey, there is another officer who we relieved of duty. And it all happened at the same time, soon after that January 7th incident. Yeah, it was confusing from the public's perspective because you'd be like, if, if you knew that somebody else had already been suspended over this and you're making a lot of hay over these firings and arrests, why wouldn't you even mention it until after the outrage from the public. So that's the police side, Stephanie. What about like the medics? Was this just an issue of they took a long time to respond to the call or did they get the call and, and take their time? I mean, what, what happened here? So when it comes to the Memphis Fire Department, it's going to be a completely different analysis. We know that two EMTs have been fired and a lieutenant. And what we learned from the fire chief in a statement was that they concluded their investigation and they found that the two EMTs that responded based on the initial nature of the call that someone had been pepper sprayed, they were there, they they went to the scene and they failed to conduct an adequate patient assessment of Tyree Nichols. And the reason why the lieutenant was fired is because she allegedly did not get out of the truck. So here you have the supervisor in the truck and the two EMTs getting out of the truck to see what the situation is, but they got fired because the fire chief says those two EMTs did not adequately assess Tyree Nichols. When this video all came out in the first place, you were basically standing with the crowds of people reacting to this release. What has the attitude been like among those demonstrators? And are there specific reforms that people want to see enacted at this point? The people that I've spoken to over the weekend at those protests and even today, they're they're still upset. Do you think the city of Memphis will see some sort of a change after this? And not just Memphis, but just across the country. I think that the change that we're seeking is not going to come from the ballot boxes. It's going to come from what people are doing right here. But the city there is some level of relief because they are seeing a department that is acting quickly. They saw the five officers charged. They've seen other officers, the EMTs relieved of duty. So they're seeing that action and also the disbanding of the Scorpion unit. There have been so many allegations against the Scorpion unit, which is a street crime fighting unit. There are folks that I spoke to this weekend that said they had been complaining for years about this unit, saying that they were that the officers within that unit were aggressive and abusing their power. So to see that unit fall apart and get disbanded on Sunday uh, was a relief for them. But they want more. They want to see more. I am going to fight until I have no more breath to make sure that we receive justice for my son. Tyree Nichols' family wants to create what would be Tyree's law. It would require officers to report a crime committed by a fellow officer if they are there on the scene witnessing it. So that is something that they're working on and they want police reform. And this is something that has been asked for 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 so long by so many families who have been affected by 
a similar situation where, where they've had some sort of fatal encounter with police and there hasn't been much progress. So Tyree Nichols's family is hoping that his death is a catalyst for change. Well, and so you got proposals for, you know, what you call Tyree's law. There's also the George Floyd Act, which has been sitting in Congress now for over a year. President Biden says he wants to see a real push to get it passed, but it's not clear at all that the vote numbers are changing there. Stephanie Ramos, they're in Memphis. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Next up on Start Here, the national emergency on COVID is over in about three months. We'll explain on the other side of the break. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more or I'd read a book or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. Three years ago today, COVID-19 was just beginning to grip the world. We had just banned foreign travelers from China from entering the country, but it was already too late. We had just recorded our first transmission of human-to-human infection here in the States. That's where we were. Three years later, the pandemic, of course, is still very much a thing. And yet, the National Emergency Declaration that has dictated so much of our country's pandemic response, well, that's now slated to end. Let's go to ABC's Cheyenne Hazlett, who covers federal health policy. Cheyenne, what is the word from the White House? We found out yesterday evening that the White House intends to end two emergencies that have been going on since 2020 under the Trump administration. And this is sort of a long time coming. It's been on the table for a while. They were set to expire on March 1st and on April 11th, respectively. One is a national emergency. One is a public health emergency. And in a notice to Congress on Monday, the White House said it will briefly extend both emergency declarations to May 11th and then terminate them. Well, and I, like, I don't know a lot about ending public health emergencies, but it seems like either the emergency is over and we're kind of like 
we have to like now wait for a few months to declare it's over or we're currently in an emergency and we're we're hoping it will end in a few months like we're planning on emergencies ending but either way like what what does that mean functionally Cheyenne what actually happens when you end a public health emergency or a national emergency yeah it is hard to declare an emergency over i think covid will probably have the last word there but it's definitely something that could change if the virus really surges before may 11th when i put this question to the White House last night, a senior administration official there told me they think the biggest impact will actually be on the health system, like hospitals and doctor's offices, because of things they've come accustomed to under the public health emergency, like billing. Hospitals have gotten used to a higher rate for Medicare patients during the emergency. Or, for example, they've been allowed to exceed bed capacity during these huge surges that we've seen and fit in way more patients. But another aspect of this is what we have had covered over the past few years as Americans, as COVID patients, as people who want to get vaccinated and treatment. You might wonder if that means that any of that goes away. The answer is you probably will still get COVID vaccines for free, and that's connected to whether or not you have insurance. But as for free tests and treatments, that is no longer a guarantee, Mm. even with insurance. But vaccines are going to continue to be covered through other laws that Congress has passed and the Biden administration. That said, the same administration official that I talked to on this said that actually ending the public health emergency isn't going to be a huge impact uh, on how we've been accessing vaccines and tests in comparison to what's going to come later this year, which is actually a bigger change. That's when the government is slated to stop buying and distributing COVID shots and treatments and tests for free, and it will really move over to private insurance and public insurance. And then beyond even my doctor's office, Cheyenne, how does the public health emergency, how do these emergency declarations affect, I don't know, bigger parts of government, like how we track COVID? How, like there's stuff that doesn't even necessarily have to do with COVID that kind of relied on COVID in some way. Like what, what happens to some of these larger government programs? Yeah, one is that a lot of the data the CDC has gotten over the pandemic has been because the public health emergency mandates that states share that. Things like case counts and COVID deaths, but that will end when the emergency ends. So the administration will be working with states in the next few months to try and get them on board to keep doing that voluntarily. We will see how that affects how much we can tell about what's really happening in the moment about the pandemic. And then there's a few other things that are not so obviously tied to public health. One is Title 42 on the immigration front. And this is the order that has allowed the Trump and Biden administrations to turn people away at the border under the reasoning that there's, you know, a rapidly spreading disease. But that can end pretty soon after this public health emergency ends on May 11th. And I will leave it to the immigration reporters to follow up on. But the Biden administration did say in their announcement that they supported a, quote, orderly, predictable wind down of Title 42 with sufficient time to put alternative policies in place. Uh, And then the other one that might surprise people is there are questions about how this could impact the student loan debt relief program, which is already in legal limbo, but was predicated on the fact that people have struggled so much during the pandemic that they need assistance to be able to start repaying their loans again. Well, now that the emergencies are ending, does that hurt the Biden administration's argument before the Supreme Court in February? The Biden administration has argued that the long tail of the pandemic is still at play. It doesn't need to be an emergency, but we'll definitely see. Yeah, definitely a sign that the kind of era of this government response to this pandemic is about to change substantially. However, 
it is still a pandemic. Like, don't get it twisted. Hundreds of Americans still dying every day from the disease. Cheyenne Hazlitt, really helpful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. In the aftermath of Tyree Nichols' killings, the scope of concerns has grown exponentially wider, right? It's not hard to draw a line from one police killing in Memphis to broader systemic issues. We saw this after George Floyd's death a couple years ago. And one of the questions that arose from those conversations was whether it was finally time for reparations in this country. And what's shocking is, 150 years after the Civil War, several state and local governments said back in 2020, yeah. History is being made in Asheville, North Carolina. Evanston selecting its first group of recipients for his reparations housing program. Details from a San Francisco committee about reparations for black residents. And for the last couple of years, they've been setting up programs as such. Several of those programs are now getting off the ground. That, though, has come with controversy. ABC's Morgan Norwood has actually been taking a look at reparations in the state of Rhode Island. And Morgan, of all the places to be instituting a $10 million reparations program, I would not have expected it to be in Rhode Island, a northern state. What is happening here? You know, I think that's the initial thought of so many people when they think that slavery is just consolidated to the South, right? But many people do not know the deep history of Rhode Island. At one point in the world, the trading capital, uh, slave trading capital of the colonial United States. Brown University, right there in Providence, built on the backs of slaves. The founder, John Brown, a known slave trader. And this is College Hill? So this is College Hill, the whole, right out the window, everything you see. And it's the east side of Providence. Black folks have lived here since 1701. One of the first people that we knew we had to talk to was Ray Rickman. He's a former state senator, but he's also um, just a great historian. You, you told me that this particular area was, was once full of black people, at least 30 percent. Yes. Right? Yes. How has that changed? They're gone. He was talking about how the city and how government officials basically drove out you know, the black population from that area surrounding Brown University to other areas within Rhode Island. And in the 50s, Providence Preservation Society wanted to reclaim that neighborhood. They wanted to expand mm. and get rid of all the black people and turn that hill into a white neighborhood. Wow. And so that's the hook there with reparations. I mean, they're recognizing their part in slavery and, and thus uh, systemic racism. And let's make history. Mayor Jorge Alorza signed an executive order, which now begins the process of possibly establishing a reparations program here in Providence. Now, that does come with a little bit of controversy uh, as well, especially when you get down to, you know, the who, how this should be laid out, the strategy with all of that. And we'll get in, into that in just a second. But that was the overarching context for why they decided to dig deep and introduce a reparations project. And so how much money are we talking about and what does that money do? How does it work? So we're talking about $10 million and to shoot it straight, it's basically leftover COVID-19 funds. You know, while other cities have poured back uh, their COVID-19 funds into schools, back into infrastructure, whatever the case may be, Rhode Island said, hey, let's talk about reparations. Yeah. So after the George Floyd homicide, you know, we, we wanted to do something that really addressed uh, the issue at its core. We wanted to make the most out of the moment. And so, you know, that's why we elected this process. Well, the strategy here isn't 40 acres and a mule, right? It's not cash in hand. It's it's going to be taking that money and spreading it out to nonprofits and programs that are working hand in hand with the black and brown community. The city of Providence has always invested in the work 
um, the Rhode Island Black Business Association, and we go by REBA. The whole point of this reparations program is to pour into nonprofits, pour into businesses. And so we talk with Lisa Rangland, the CEO of REBA. You know, all of our programming that we do here at the association is designed to help people move from poverty to sustainability. They were on the receiving end of this $10 million grant. We were able to purchase our building, the headquarters, and the city of Providence was able to invest $150,000 to be part of that development of this building, right? So we purchased this building, own it outright. One of the things that they do, they do a lot of financial literacy courses. They do a lot of, um, you know, working with black and brown business professionals on their business models, connecting them with other people in the community to kind of get their their foot in the door in terms of, you know, how to get your business up and running. Um, And so we talk with them and it's kind of interesting. It's kind of a chain of how this would work. When you look at the unemployment rate, higher in black and brown communities. When you look at jobs creation, very low in the black and brown community, it tells me that greater investment is needed in communities of color. And you said it was money that was basically allocated for the COVID-19 pandemic. How does that, like, what, how does that affect this program? And how does it affect perceptions of this program. You know, that is one point of the division in terms of this program. You know, many have said that, you know, they should have done something else with that money. We've always been very explicit that this is municipal reparations. You know, we're doing what we can with what we have. The other side of this is that because it is federal COVID-19 funds, the federal government had guidelines, right, that said there could be no racial discrimination. You know, if we made this race-based as opposed to race-neutral, uh, we would likely get sued and we'd be locked in litigation for two, three years. So and then they had to kind of rebrand or re-strategize how they're going to divvy out the reparations. And in that, they had to label the program race-neutral. What this policy is, is it is city funds from COVID-19 funds, national COVID-19 funds, to fund an anti-poverty program. That's not what reparations is. We actually spoke with an activist, a former Brown University student, an activist who says, you know, basically you cannot label this as reparations because it's not repairing anything for the black and brown community. Reparations is the work to repair the harm that has been done to black people in this country, specifically black folks who are descendants of the slave trade, of the transatlantic slave trade. What would you like to see? What would reparations look like from your vantage point? I believe it has to have a process in our city where we truly understand what it means to include Black people and Indigenous people at all parts of life of Providence. Wow, so race neutral, meaning like there could be white people getting this reparations money. That's wild. Another thing that crossed my mind, Morgan, is will this ever be enough? Because if reparations is such a huge undertaking, but you're just borrowing money from COVID-19 programs and leftover funds... Is that a sustainable model for something this big? Right. Well, I can put it to you the way that Rodney Davis, the chair of the committee that came up with this program or strategized this program, at least, he said, quote, 10 million is a drop in a a pool. pool. Not even a bucket, because if we really wanted to repair the harm, it's going to be hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars. But the ultimate hope was that this was a start. This is opening up the conversation. Just even having it acknowledging the harm. I'm sorry for what this city, this state has done. That was a powerful thing. 
I just find it so interesting when the theoretical becomes reality. And you had this theory a couple of years ago that this could be a moment for reparations in this country. Well, now it's becoming reality in a lot of places and the complications that come with that. Also, huge dividing lines and polls between black Americans and white Americans on whether that's something they support. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it. Thanks so much, Morgan. Thank you for having me. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, what if your messy kid doesn't spark joy? Do they have to go? Get ready to clean house. One last thing is next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And one last thing. She looks excited. (laughs) I'm so excited because I love it's the admission that every parent sitting in a cluttered home was waiting for. Take all the clothes from everywhere in the house and pile it into one big fountain. Marie Kondo is a legend of neatness. You've probably heard of her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, where she recommends cleaning out your purse every time you get home. Or her Netflix show, where she suggested ideally having less than 30 books in your house. Touch the item that sparks joy for you. Okay. And you feel... Okay. Well, in her most recent book, Kondo strikes a slightly different tune, saying now, as a mother of three, she's, quote, kind of given up on a perpetually tidy home, to which many readers spent the weekend saying, finally, she gets it. Some folks found this validating, like she's just like us. Others found it mystifying. Here's a Japanese author influencer who convinced a generation of Americans that minimalism would make them feel better. Now that she's got messy kids at home, it's suddenly not worth it. A lot of critics said, yeah, I could have told you this the whole time. And I totally connect with both sides of this debate. My wife convinced me to go full condo a few years ago, to throw out anything I hadn't used in a year, to bring my closet size way down, to only hold on to things that sparked joy. I'm still resentful I didn't hold on to that corkscrew that wasn't sparking joy on a random night in April. It really would have come in handy when my other one broke. And yet, I'm still someone who rolls up my socks the way condo prescribes without stretching the elastic because, in her rationale, the socks shouldn't have to work too hard. I feel way less pressure about holding on to gifts I never wanted. It sometimes literally makes me feel joyful. The vibe is completely different from the first day I came here. Oh my god, we feel it too. I think the reason there's such an intense reaction towards Marie Kondo is because she wasn't taking on things in her writing. She was politely, cheerfully turning the American way of life on its head. We were told for decades that accumulating stuff mattered. Here was this Japanese lady telling us that wasn't true. How dare she? Perhaps what this should reflect on more is the expectation that we all can and should evolve. When Kondo wrote The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, she was in her mid-20s. If you're going to organize your life around a 20-something, that's on you. And now that she's grown, she says she's learning. That, at least, is a lesson that's neat, tidy, and travels well. By the way, since I lived by this, the one piece of advice of hers I can tell people will always work, always, always, is grab all the electronics cables in your home, put them all in one place, and 
look at them all, recycle everything you are not currently using in your life. Like, you will never use that old printer cable again. You just won't. Your next phone will come with a charger. And just trust me, you have more of these than you think in every single room. So don't go room by room. Do it all at once. Hey, if you're enjoying this show, if you get some usable information besides that from us every day, hit us up with a rating and review. It really does help us out. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.